to the moth light. Into the Moth Light Podcast. Hello and welcome to Into the Moth Light. For episode 20 of the podcast, we're talking to filmmaker and visual artist Emma Penaz Eisner. Emma has created short films and moving image art that have screened worldwide in art gallery exhibitions and as official selections in over 200 international film festivals. Her work is in experimental filmmaking, live action combined with animation, digital and analogue photography and stop motion animation. She engages with enduring mythical, existential and psychological themes, often including dream logic and building non-narrative structures in her work. Her most recent experimental film, I Am He Who Created Himself, premiered at the Revelation Perth International Film Festival in July this year. I talked to Emma down the line from her home in San Francisco and asked her first about her journey into experimental film. Into the moth light. I was always um, really interested in art just generally from a young age. Um, And um, as a child, I became interested in film because I... um, started doing it in a class at school when I was a little kid but I um just fell in love with it at that time in my life and I became really interested in the idea of the combination between sound and visuals and movement in order to create an overall idea and I feel like it's sort of the most expressive form of art because it's um got so many um elements that you can bring together to create an overall flushed out concept um Thus, I basically ended up gravitating towards experimental film because um, as I got older and I could actually think more intellectually, I got really interested in um, the expression of abstract ideas and raising things out of the unconscious into the conscious as opposed to just telling more narrative stories. And so that's basically how I got into experimental film. You say that at that early age you started to have a, a better interest in experimental film. Did you have the opportunity to see um, work um, in San Francisco? Were you, were you were you able to kind of access um, some of the kind of classic experimental films that we all know and admire, and that certainly influences most of us? I went to the art museum a lot. Um, my whole life, I was always taken to the art museum. But um, my family is um, of Czech origin. My mom is from the Czech Republic originally. And um, she um, introduced me to the films of Jan Schwankmeier at a pretty young age. And he's one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, his film, Insect, um, premiered at Alchemy, actually. So that was pretty cool. His work was very influential for me. And also, um, a lot of the other things that I'm pinpointing that I saw when I was really young in um, museums were kind of just the work of the classic surrealists, basically, Um, like the films that Buñuel and Dolly made together. And those films were definitely extremely influential to me. And um, I was struck by the way that they both choose to cut images together in a way that implies that they're associated when they're not actually inherently associated. And that was something that definitely influenced me kind of in a more abstract way because I interpreted that as a way as a example of a way to integrate live action and animation together which is something I often do in my films and I try to do it in a way where it's seamless where people can't really tell that that's what's being done 
you had the interest in experimental film and you're getting to see other filmmakers visiting the museums and beginning to understand what might be possible through that the the um the medium of experimental film so at what stage did you actually think about switching on a camera and and uh, capturing images and uh, joining uh, and incorporating some of your ideas around animation when did that start to kind of uh, become a reality for you the first films I made were not experimental because the first films I made were also not very serious because I was a kid. But the first time I picked up a camera to actually make a film was when I was five or six. The first work that I made, which um, was basically animated narrative work, and the first actual experimental film I made, I made when I was 11. And that was also the second film that I had that actually showed in film festivals. So it was the second film that I had that was actually good. You know, since that point, I've had a um, pretty consistent experimental film practice because I, um, I think, I think, I think like an animator in the sense that I pre-plan things to a great degree. I storyboard things out in a lot of detail before I execute them, and I think it's really important to um, create films in an intentional manner. I definitely think that that was when my film practice as it is today started, but I did start using cameras and doing animation and making films a lot earlier than that. It's just that I didn't really have any defined artistic practice, obviously, as a kid. But I think there's something quite encouraging about that because no matter who you are or how you grow up, you are always... um, the first films you always see are the films that are made in, in Hollywood. It's mainstream cinema. So it's probably um, a, a child's mind that's possibly best equipped to uh, ignore all those rules and, and make a film that seems right for them, do you think? Yeah, I think so. And I think also part of the reason I was so drawn to animation just originally was that animation is inherently to some degree experimental often in its structure because animation doesn't really have to apply to any um, typical narrative conventions or even conventions of physics. For example, when when you watch um, Looney Tunes, for example, which is something that I watched a lot when I was a kid, the cartoon with the coyote and the roadrunner, the roadrunner will paint something and he can run into it, but the coyote will crash into it, right? And that obviously doesn't make any sense in real life. But to a kid, that makes sense. And I think to an adult who makes experimental films and art, that also still makes sense. So I think that kind of tradition of animation definitely leads to a um, different mentality applied to live action film than one would apply to live action film if one was taught as a live action filmmaker originally. You mentioned your first festival screening so uh, at what point did you start to have the confidence to um, submit your work to to film festivals um the first work that i seriously submitted to film festivals was a narrative animated film when i was 10 and i've always been a pretty confident person i assumed that my work was good and i assumed that somebody else would like it because i thought it was good and i liked it As I've gotten older, obviously my work has gotten better because I've been making films seriously and going to festivals and talking to people at festivals for a number of years now. Yeah, it just seemed natural to me that since I thought it was good that somebody else would also think it was good. I am always interested in how um, filmmakers 
who attend festivals and travel and meet other artists and filmmakers, how that um, influences your work. And I, I know that your, your, your films have been shown globally and you've attended many of these festivals. So, so growing up and finding your voice as a filmmaker, did that help to be able to kind of meet like-minded people, possibly older people, and, and have those conversations about work and their work and work that you had experienced uh, collectively in a, in a festival? Very much so, because um, a film festival or other sorts of arts showings that have an important focus on film is pretty much one of the only situations that I've been in where I feel like I meet people who are really on the same wavelength as, wavelength as me intellectually and um, artistically. And I think it's always been a really good experience for me to be able to talk to other people who think about the world through the lens of an artist, so thus in a similar way to the way that I think about it, and who also can hold their own intellectually because they know a lot of the same things that I know. When I talk to other filmmakers or people who are intellects, I just feel like those conversations are amazing. And ever since I was younger, I felt that way, and I still feel that way now. And so I've just made a lot of connections through film festivals with people who are just really amazing thinkers, basically, really bright people and who are like-minded with me. And I know that the, the, the times when we've met at, at festivals, um, you've always taken part in Q&As to, to discuss your work in, in that open forum. So again, um, is that something you enjoy, having an opportunity to, to kind of uh, let people see your work and then have that conversation in a Q&A afterwards? I enjoy sharing my work. I and I enjoy um, hearing other people's interpretations of it and being able to um, sort of see what they got from it. But I also like being asked questions about it because I think that that um, it's interesting to see what people got from my work and what people interpreted. By contrast, it's also interesting to see the things that people didn't understand. And I think that that is really great. And I also think that Q&As always blend to a situation where you can have an awesome conversation about um, the influences behind the work. And I also enjoy talking to people and I really enjoy talking about my work. Um, I know some artists don't, but I actually do like to. I definitely enjoy the setting of a Q&A very much. And I also like to hear what other people have to say about their work because I like to I like to interpret the work myself and then I like to see if my interpretation is on par with what the person um, intended with their work. So yeah, I love Q&As. <laughs> Into the moth light. Into the moth light. I know that you... You, you study at the moment, um, you, you go to school. So how, how does that in any way inform your work or or is that just a hindrance and something that gets in the way of your um, experimental film practice? School is a necessary evil. You have to go to school if you want to go to art school or film school. But no, jokes aside, I have a lot of teachers who are really great. I think that a lot of the knowledge that I've acquired through um, history and English classes, so knowledge of literature and knowledge of philosophy, and also knowledge of um, the ways in which things occur in the world over large spans of time, have been um, influential upon my work. When I'm given the opportunity, pretty much in any context, to learn intellectual information that I didn't know before, that information always has a positive impact on my work because the more you know, the more you can convey to other people. Um, but I also get a lot of 
interesting and important information from reading things on my own and from looking at the news and from thinking and from watching other films. Um, but right now, the school that I'm in is really great um, because your schedule is pretty much independently driven because I have, um, it's sort of university style in the sense that there's one-on-one classes with teachers that are not at the same time as other people's classes and you have a lot of independence. And I think that's really great because it gives me the opportunities and the opportunity and time to work on my work for most of my day and for most of my, um, my film work for most of the week, basically, instead of spending um, undue amounts of time on schoolwork and yeah. I think I read on your uh, CV that you have a, a mentor as well. So that must be nice, uh, again, to, to have that one-to-one tuition and have someone particularly um, to, to work with you, to, to, to mentor you, to develop your work. So is that something, an idea that you, you're really keen to engage with? That is an idea that I am keen to engage with. And um, I don't make my films with him. I make my films on my own. When I want to learn a skill, his name is Rowan, by the way, he's a really great guy. When I want to learn a skill, a technical skill that I don't know, I will work it through with him um, in the context of another project that I'll come up with to work on with him. But I don't send the stuff that I do with him to film festivals because it's sort of just practical learning things. And then I make my films by myself. So it's a context in which I can learn more skills that I need and then apply them to my own work. And that's really great. That is definitely something that I would recommend to pretty much anybody. And I, I know from uh, looking at your films at, at festivals and online that you you do shoot um, a lot in San Francisco and the surrounding area, a city that I've never been to, but uh, obviously very well photographed over the years. How how is that city and that landscape um, helped your creative process? That is a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've always lived in San Francisco my whole life, and I think that um, San Francisco is an interesting city because it is obviously very urban, but it's nestled directly in areas that are completely um, natural. There's this contrast between um, urban life and these tall buildings and this very sharp skyline versus just when you drive out of the city, um, beautiful nature and mountains and that kind of thing. And I think that that sort of dichotomy has influenced my work in the sense that I like to, um, I like the idea of putting two different things together that work together in my work in general, um, visually and conceptually, or multiple different things. But in terms of, for example, like how I was talking about before, um, how I like to put animation and live action together and then integrate it. I think that that concept is definitely influenced also by growing up in a place that has the urban world and the natural world and they're basically integrated, um, but also disparate simultaneously. And so um, I think that that probably comes out through my work because I film in San Francisco, but I think it also comes out through other facets of my work, like I said, like the animation, the live action put together. Last night, I dreamed of Mother. She was made of wire. Electrical wire? No, I don't think so. I don't know, maybe. 
It reminded me of the story, the one with the androids and the spider. The android picked it up and dismembered it to see how many legs the spider needed to walk. So let's talk about some specific films then. Um, So Beth's Three O'Clock with Dr. Harlow from 2018, uh, that's one that people can see online and we will share the link to this on our website. Um, A vivid study of casual brutality and failed empathy. So it's a really interesting work. Um, So tell me about the starting point for this particular film. Um, Was there an idea that sparked this or did you have particular visuals in in mind when you sat down to, to get started on this particular project? Yeah, um, with this film, I really wanted to pick up where my previous work left off by basically continuing to explore the ideas of failed empathy and societal sadism and um, unconscious psychopathies in everyday life. Um, My previous work, um, There's More Than One Way to Skin a Man, was essentially a demonstration of masculine violence and masculine everyday psychopathy, and this was supposed to be feminine violence and feminine everyday psychopathy, and... um, so they're kind of Jungian. They go together in the sense that they're the animus and the anima, right? The um, characters or the ideas that are conveyed are. As I said, I wanted to um, show feminine and maternal phenomena of psychopathy or its basis in the anima in this film. I wanted to do so through the lens of a psychoanalytical session and a dream state. Um, and I wanted to also rework ideas from other things that had come before the film. So I showed ideas from Harry Harlow's 1950s monkey experiments. Um, and I also referenced um, this psychopathic child patient named Beth in the documentary called Child of Rage from the 90s and Philip K. Dick's Who Androids Dream of Electric Sheep um, and Igmar Bergman's explorations of a sadistic deity in Through a Glass Darkly. And basically all of these things aimed to give the viewer the opportunity to experience something within himself that has heretofore remained concealed or frankly unknown um, and to bring these things that are definitely in our society and within people to a surface level where people could see them and understand them outside of their own unconscious. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a lot to consider within that. So I'm interested in the process of how how that the various concepts in there actually make it into something that we can see and, and visually experience. And you mentioned earlier that you do like to storyboard. So what is that process of, of turning it from, from thoughts and ideas that you want to explore and portray and actually what it's going to look like for the viewer? Basically, when I storyboard out a film, I try to think about how I can use images that relate to... Um, understandings that people have within them so the image whether or not the person is intellectually informed the image will draw out the same reaction within the person for example in this film i um i wanted to show something that's common um and that thing that was common was the killing of the bees in the film right because people kill bugs all the time but i wanted to show it in a way that was very clean and um scientific almost so it's like you're watching a scientific study but also juxtaposed with the disturbing thing that beth the woman is saying 
which is that she was talking about sticking pins in her brother while we see the while we see the man Harlow's hand sticking the pins into the bees. And so I wanted to create a parallel between this image of something that is disturbing but not atypical with something that is disturbing and is atypical um, to connect those two things to imply this um, psychopathy that regular so-called regular everyday people hold within them. Um, And I also wanted to use a contrast between images that were obviously a dream state versus images that were within Beth's so-called psychoanalysis session, right? Um, To create this contrast between the external and internal state of a human being, um, which is, you know, obviously something everyone has. And the other thing that I did was um, I wanted to use the three o'clock in the title to reference basically several things within the Bible, which is because the Bible is the ultimate text. So people know about things from the Bible um, because three o'clock was when Christ died, but it's also the Trinity and it's the minimum of something that you need to build something. For example, a table, you need three legs at least, right? So I wanted to imply that this is what is happening in this film is something that is just inherent in our society and in personhood and in this case in the case of this film and femininity this kind of chaos and aggression and violence um through saying that it's so integral in the way that the number three is Mm, okay now that's interesting and 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 that work um I i think the 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 piece starts with um some stop motion animation or time lapse photography with um an image of a doll crawling towards um, a wire outline of, of, of a woman. And again, you mentioned Yang Schwankmeyer earlier, and I can certainly see the influence there. Um, and at that time, lapse photography and animation cuts across a lot of your work. Um, what is it about the aesthetic and, and the, the process um, that, that really appeals to you there? I really like animation overall. Um, I wouldn't lie and say that I love doing it per se, but I love the way that it looks. I love the idea that you can have something that is the imitation of a thing that is alive and it imitates it to the point where it even moves, but it's not alive until you, the artist, breathe life into it. And in the case of the baby and, um, well, the fake baby, I was really interested in kind of making a comment on, I guess, half-baked motherhood, for lack of a better description, because it's supposed to reference Harry Harlow's um, monkey studies of the 50s, like I said, which were basically, for anybody listening to this who doesn't know, studies on infant development, where he put these baby monkeys with a cloth mother and a wire mother, and the wire mother provided food, but the cloth mother provided comfort. And the um, baby monkeys always gravitated towards the cloth mother. And then those monkeys, when they had babies of their own, were basically sadistic and cruel towards them because they didn't have the actual comfort of actually having a parent. The wire mother with the fake human baby is sort of implying that the baby will not develop into a fully-fledged adult because the parent is not doing her role to the full degree. That's the existential reason for conveying this scene in animation in this film. Just in general, though, I definitely really do like animation, and I think that um, there are certain concepts that are conveyed better in animation and other ones that are conveyed better in live action. And to 
do the best job that I can to convey all of the concepts within my films. I I try to think empirically about what the best way to create that scene just from the bottom up would be, and then I do it that way. And so that's why I often end up integrating animation and live action within the same film. One other thing that cuts across all your work, as far as I can see, is is the ideas around dream logic, um, dreamscapes, um, and dreams in general. And I guess when we're thinking about dream logic, um, perhaps the only way that you can convey some of those ideas is around animation as well. Like you were saying before about um, the roadrunner um, going through the painting um, and the coyote um, smashing into the wall. It can only exist in animation. Exactly. Animation does two things. One, animation gives you complete control. And two, animation inherently suspends reality on the basis of the fact that it's animated. So in the sense that it gives you complete control, you can build the set, you can build the actor, you can build everything. So if you want something to look a certain way, if you dreamed something or you conceived of something and it must look a certain way to convey the right idea, animation is basically the go-to form that you want to go to because you have 100% control over how it looks. Um, And two, like I said, it inherently suspends reality because when you see that something's animated and you know that it's animated, you know that it can't be real. So you don't expect it to be realistic. So as the viewer, you're more accepting of basically dream logic and physically unrealistic things happening in in the service of conveying a deeper idea. And so, therefore, if one wants to convey some existential idea through strange and bizarre means, then animation is definitely what what the best form to use is. And let's talk about there's more than one way to skin a man from from 2017. So I've been lucky enough to see that film projected and it was really nice to be able to see it online again. And um, in the description you say, you ask the question, who are these men that embody and fuel our collective existential upheaval um, and I think you mentioned before a, a film about male ag- aggression um, so was that a theme around aggression and, and particularly male aggression something that you uh, wanted to explore and, and build into a film I mean yeah I wanted um, there's more than one way to skin a man and Beth's three o'clock with Dr. Harlow to sort of existentially function together because there's more than one way to skin a man um, explores masculine animus driven aggression and violence and um beth's three o'clock with dr harlow explores feminine anima driven violence basically um and i kind of just pinpointed that the masculine violence and the feminine violence are different from each other because but they're both equally destructive and so that's why the films are so different but you know equally disturbing hopefully And I was interested in your use of found footage in that film. And I've, I've, I've talked to a number of people over the years who incorporate a lot of found footage. So I'm interested in how you you source that found footage and in the same way that you um, make the jumps from um, regular footage to something that you've animated 
fluid? How do you go about um, uh, keeping that fluidity from um, images that you've shot yourself and then images that you've you've sourced from one place or another? Yeah, when I was creating slash editing, there's more than one way to skin a man. Um, something that I thought that became really important was timing, actually, from one thing to the next. So when I took the um, found footage sections, I edited those sections within themselves, basically as separate pieces of the film. Um, and then when I cut them together with the other things that I created, because I had basically recut things, some of which were already cut with my own timing, it made them applicable to then the timing that I created and the stuff that I made. So I basically took found footage and changed it into something that was mine. I mean, obviously not literally because I didn't create it from the first step, but I remade it and reformed it at the speed and with the cadence that I wanted it to possess. So that was basically how I integrated the things with each other. I also color graded everything differently than how it was already color graded when I edited it. So I color graded all of the found footage out of its original color scheme and into the color scheme of my film. Um, I didn't do anything really drastic because I started seeing themes of certain repeated colors over the footage that I was interested in using, um, like greens and yellows. Um, and a lot of that was present because some of the footage was um, from stuff that was basically pro-war propaganda that I took the sound off and basically made into anti-war stuff instead of pro-war. Um, but um, And I had the luck that the footage of Ted Bundy that I had had a lot of greens and yellows in it also that were similar to the colors in the um, war-related footage. I tried to pinpoint those colors, use similar colors in the footage that I created, and then take the colors and color grade, let's say, every green consistently to be the same green. So those were basically the two things that I used to um, make my footage consistent, color and timing. Again, another thing that's um, obvious across all your work is that kind of attention to detail. And I'm always interested in uh, uh, an artist's um, work and practice and, and their work and day. Um, some people have the ability to sit for eight or nine hours just at work um, working through the edits and, and colour matching or going through found footage. So how does it best work for you? Are, are you the kind of person that likes a long run or are you quite happy to, to sit and work at something for an hour when you have an hour to spare? G given um, you know the, the, the kind of big ideas that you, you grapple with and you want to portray and again that, that urgency to make the best work that you can. For me, it's all about making the work the way that I want it to be. So I'm willing to spend as much time on something as I have to in order to make it look the way that I pictured it. Um, editing is by no means my favorite part of the filmmaking process. Um, I like color grading a lot, but I don't like the editing where you have to cut things together because I really want the timing to be right. And I think I'm very good at editing actually, but the experience of repeatedly doing something and have it be not exactly right is extremely aggravating to me but I would rather aggravate myself completely and end up with the thing actually being right in the long run and with my film being the way that I want it to be than give up so if I have to spend eight hours in a row cutting something I will um, I tend to be pretty good at predicting how long it's going to take me to make a film because that's just 
something that's important to me to know when I'm going to be done and not have to be under ridiculous time pressure because I go to myself, I didn't leave myself enough time and now I can't submit this to film festivals. That would be difficult and kind of a disaster. Um, I do spend a lot of time editing and I spend as much time as I need to to get it to look how I want. That's that's my priority, to have the film be how I pictured it being and how I intended it to be and how I storyboarded it. But that being said, I don't, I'm not really um, a sloppy filmmaker. I don't um, film more things than I need. I only film what I need. So my editing process is really figuring out where the edges of the clips in relation to each other are going to be and less like trying to choose, oh, is it this shot from this angle or this shot from that angle? I already know that. I've figured that out in the storyboarding, so. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light podcast. So let's get right up to date then. So the film that is appearing at various festivals at the moment is I Am He Who Created Himself. So tell me a little about um, tell me a little bit about that particular work and um, what the response has been when you've taken it out to festivals. Yeah, it has an interesting genesis. Um, I'm like I've mentioned before multiple times, kind of passive aggressively. I'm really interested in Jungian theory, um, and I was reading the book The Origins and History of Consciousness, which is a book that's written by um, Eric Neumann, who is a student of Jung. And um, he proposes an idea in that book that really appeals to me, namely that the trajectory of an individual's psychological development basically tracks with the trajectory of human development as recorded in mythological stories of creation. And then he basically proceeds to describe similarities between ancient creation myths and basically says that those myths are similar across cultures because they basically reflect a story that's unconsciously present in all people and we all unconsciously know it. And because I'm really interested in bringing the unconscious into awareness in people through my work in general. This is basically the perfect topic for me. So in this film, I wanted to create a visual interpretation and retelling basically of the human origin story as recorded in antiquity. And I used the um, Heliopolitan creation myth, which is an ancient Egyptian myth in which the god Atum creates himself to tell a universal creation story that we all know. Um, And I'm relying on certain symbolism to do that in this film the Ouroboros, which is a self-eating snake, um, the concept of the shadow self, images of consumption and traveling through flesh. Um, And these are images that, as Neumann would suggest, we all know unconsciously, we know their meaning in an intuitive manner, and through the transmission of anciently held knowledge on an unconscious level. Um, So that's basically the concept behind the film. And um, I would say that the response to the film so far has been great. I've seen it... um, I want to say I've gone to two festivals, actually gone to two festivals where it showed, um, and people definitely seemed to enjoy it. And also, I think that so far this is my most technically advanced film, obviously, because I mean, my artistic practice builds up upon itself and I know how to do more and more technical things as I go on. But um, this film was very trying and difficult in many ways um, because I was delving into forms of animation that I hadn't done before. For example, for example, one of the things I animated in this film was an actual real snake skeleton. That was very difficult. It's articulated by this guy who um, does taxidermy. He's a really interesting guy. His name is Wilder Duncan. Um, he made it for the film for me. Um, 
And that was basically what 100% of the budget went to, paying for that and then getting it to California. But um, the reaction has definitely been great. So that is something that I'm extremely happy about because I put a lot of effort into this film. It's been great to have a chat with you. Um, Thanks very much for your time. Uh, It's been really nice. Thanks. Thanks. It's been really great to talk to you too. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And you can see Emma's film Beth's Three O'Clock with Dr. Harlow and stills from her other works on their website at intothemothlight.com. Until next time, goodbye. Into the Moth Light.